Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, we ask to have open hearts and minds, that by your spirit we would receive those things that you want to give to us, the ways in which you might encourage us, the ways that you might challenge us, and the ways that we might be transformed to be more like Christ, that we would live kingdom-first lives. For your honor and glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> On October 14th, 1912, Theodore Roosevelt stepped out of the Hotel Gilpatrick in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He was heading to an auditorium to give a speech in the midst of running for an unprecedented third term as president. He was unhappy with Taft and decided that he would run again. He got into the car, and then there was a loud cheer. He stood up to wave to the crowd, and upon standing up from four to five feet away from him, he was shot with a Colt 38. The bullet didn't take his life, and at least partly, if not the main reason it didn't take his life, is because he had a copy of his manuscript for the speech he was going to give stuck in his coat, a 50-page manuscript <laughs> that saved his life. Well, you know, funny you should say that. Um, I went ahead and took my lesson, and I brought my manuscript for this week's sermon. He gets shot. Um, they immediately want to cancel the speech. They want to get him to the hospital, and he says he'll have none of it. He is going to the auditorium. He's going to give this speech. Um, he ends up, when he gets there, there is a hole in him. Um, there is a big blood stain, and he takes a handkerchief and just covers it up and goes out onto the stage. There are people in the audience that are saying, it's a fake, he didn't really get shot, and he removes it to show them the blood stain. 30 minutes into the speech, some of his bodyguards come in and they say, we really need to get you off the stage. Um, he is faint, he is pale, he is not standing up well he will continue to speak for another 50 minutes after that. And eventually he will go to the hospital. Why? He was fighting for something that he believed in so much that he was willing, I mean, not only just to run for a third term in the first place, but to get shot and to still go give that speech. I want to ask you, what are you truly willing to fight for? What are you truly willing to give 
whatever it takes to accomplish? What impacts you so much that a sacrifice, that just seems like, yeah, that's just part of it. I will sacrifice, I will give because it impacts me so much. What are you willing to fight for? As we continue this series on a kingdom first life, and we move into the, we're in the New Testament, we're moving into the ministry of Jesus now. From this point all the way through Easter season, moving into his ministry. And here's the thing, we only have a few weeks really. And we've got a whole lot of gospel. And so one of the ways we're going to be covering this is the gospel reading this morning is not what I'm preaching on. And you're going to get that every week. You're going to get a gospel passage that is leading into what we're preaching on, but it's giving you more of the gospel. As we're preaching through the gospel, we're going to talk about some of the stuff in the past as we're trying to bring this whole story to light. But as we kick off this morning, the Pharisees are willing to fight for something. Turn in your, in your Bible to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields... His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So there's not a lot right there, but there's a lot that we can pull out of there. Um, number one, it's on a Sabbath. Uh, we don't have a particular one, but it's a Sabbath day. Um, Jesus' regular routine, according to Luke 4, is to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So likely he was in a synagogue, and then this would be the afternoon, probably. Um, there are still heads of grain, which means the harvest is in but has not been harvested yet, which puts this probably in May, probably early May. Um, in Israel, this might even be like 70 degree weather. This could be a nice stroll at this point. Um, they will pluck heads of grain, which is not illegal. According to the Old Testament, especially, and they're probably not walking right through the middle of the grain field, but they're likely on the outskirts, and the outskirts were to be left. There's something there for the poor and the needy to take. And so they're making this trip from a synagogue. We don't know where they're going right now. They're just taking a trip, and they decide to take some of these grains, and essentially, they rub them in order to create the same idea of getting rid of the chaff. The, the husk, the harder part, and then they're going to eat it. They're going to eat the grain. And while they're doing this, this happens. Verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, and again, notice it's vague, much like on a Sabbath, not a particular one and not a particular grain field, here it is, some of the Pharisees, 2, 3, 10, uh, we don't know. They say, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? You know, there's a lot of questions about why these guys are here. I, you know, why did they suddenly, you know, and you get these kind of almost comic book-like scenes of they're hiding in the grain fields for Jesus and they pop up and uh, that, that, 
that's really not the scene. Um, it is possible that they followed him from the synagogue. It's possible they were in this area. But what is absolutely true is that their question for him is very, very significant. They are fighting for something in this question. On the surface, what it looks like is just a legal kind of thing. Okay, here's the law, and your disciples are breaking it. Why? Let's debate the religious, legal law, and you, you give us an answer. You, you defend them. What I want to argue through this whole passage is there is something a lot bigger going on in their question. There's a lot more here. That them even being here is very significant. In June of last year, the UK voted to leave the European Union. And recently, there is a woman named Gina Miller who took the prime minister essentially to court over this. Because in order for the UK to make, in order for them to make the decision, parliament, according to their constitution, had to enact Article 50. But Parliament didn't do that. They did a vote, and after the vote, the Prime Minister came on and she said, hey, we are going to leave the European Union. Now, this lady, Gina Miller, she has, like, she has received death threats. She is, I mean, there are some really nasty, nasty things that have been said about her, to her. Um, she is black and she has been called a baboon and other things. I mean, she has just been vilified. And she was asked, why are you doing this? And it was not just because, well, it was the law and I'm trying to hold to the law. It was much bigger than that. This is her rationale. The prime minister does not have the authority to do that for the country. She's actually overstepping her authority. And if we allow that to happen, where does it stop? The reason I'm doing this is not, she even, she's not even necessarily against Brexit. She's against the process by which they got to that point. And even though her actions will not actually change anything, Parliament's enacting it, it probably won't even change the timeline. It doesn't matter. She was doing it for a bigger reason than the legality. That is what is happening in the story. There is something much bigger going on in this story than just an argument about, you know, well, you broke the law here, you didn't break the law here. So what is it? I'd have to take you on a little bit of a journey here, okay? So bear with me. When Jesus begins his ministry, he comes out and he says, I am preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. That is a radical statement, if it is true. They have been waiting since the time when Yahweh left the temple and they were taken into captivity. They have been waiting for Yahweh to come back. 
And here comes this man, Jesus, who says, I'm preaching good news that the kingdom is here. And then following that, he begins to heal sicknesses. He begins to cast out demons. These are evidences that the kingdom of God is actually here. And those are his words. If I'm doing these things, then the finger of God is among you. The kingdom of God is among you. So he's doing these things, and and word is spreading. And more and more people are hearing of him, and they're going, okay, we got to go check this guy out. They're starting to follow. You know the stories where he can't even go into cities or villages because there's so many crowds. I am bringing in the kingdom. And then one day, he is teaching. And some Pharisees come, and they actually want to know who this guy is. Not just from what people are saying, but they want to hear from him. And so they are sitting there, and they're listening to his teaching. And this house is packed, totally full. It looks a little bit like Hertz Donuts does right now. Just drive by. You'll see what I'm talking about at any time during the day. It's packed. But there is a man who is paralyzed, and his friends have him on a mat. And they climb up on top of the house, and they dig through the ceiling. And you can just imagine the dust is falling down, and people are going, what is happening? And suddenly there's sunlight coming through. And this man is lowered down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says... Your sins are forgiven. Now, it's one thing to do a little healing. Or even to maybe cast a demon out. But you can't forgive sins. God forgives sins. Or his Messiah. Or the one bringing in the kingdom. But when he says that, they begin to go, whoa, wait a minute. And that's when he says, now look, let me show you, what do you think is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Let me show you, I have the authority to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. And the man stands up. And that begins the Pharisees going, there's something wrong with this guy. I mean, he is really stepping out there. And you start following the scenes And he will begin to challenge things, fasting, rituals. There are things he's doing that they're not used to, that they don't like, until you get to this scene. And this scene, they are there to go, hmm, what's he going to do with the Sabbath? How's he going to respond to that? Now, to give you an idea of how big of a deal this is, in your Bible... I want you to look down at verse 11 in chapter 6. This is a healing that takes place on the Sabbath that is connected to this particular story. It is connected to this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Verse 11, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. In Mark's account... They're conspiring to kill him. In Matthew's account, they're conspiring to kill him. This is the turning point in all three of the Gospels. Up to this point, they're checking him out. 
They're unhappy with some of what he's doing. They're questioning him. But it's what he does on the Sabbath that changes the whole trajectory. And now they want to know what to do with him or they want to seek how they can kill him or take him out. Why is this such a huge deal to them? Why this? The Sabbath for the Pharisees is a, it's an identifier. It shows you who is true Israel and who is not. One of the things, they're actually looking for the kingdom to come in. They're actually looking for that. But part of the way they're seeing the kingdom come in is the intensification of some of these practices, especially Sabbath. Think of it like this. Um, There are all kinds of things we have as identifiers. Wedding rings, right? You see a wedding ring, what do you think? Married. We've got symbols that identify us. I mean, now there's a new symbol coming out there, and I'm not saying anything about it. I'm just saying it's a symbol. The pink hats. You know what that means. It's coming. It's all over the place now. We have these symbols that are coming out. They say something. If you have a gym card, it means you belong to a gym. They're, They're symbols. They're identifiers. Sabbath was an identifier. The way in which you recognized or participated in or practiced the Sabbath said something about your faithfulness, your Jewishness, your Israelitness. And Jesus just showed up to a marathon in cowboy boots. Is he a real runner? Not a chance. You don't show up to a marathon in cowboy boots. That just shows You're not a real marathon runner. What he is doing is showing them that all of their thoughts about him, their questions, when they were going, wait a minute, you can't forgive sins. Wait, what are you doing about fasting? Wait, what are you doing about these rituals? They get to hear and they go, he is not the person he is claiming to be. This is an identifying question for them. It's not so much about what, but about who. Who are you? And by the way, that's how Jesus is going to answer the question. Because he gets their question. And it is bigger than just this legal matter. Go back into the text. Verse 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful. That word lawful is the same word in Greek as the lawful they use above. They want to know why the disciples are doing things that are not lawful. He now uses the same word to say this is not lawful, what David did. For any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, first off, he is not just making a legal argument either. This isn't just like a, well, you said this is thing, this thing is here over here, and his argument is not this. Well, David broke the law, 
so I can too. It's not just he's an exception, therefore I can be an exception also. It's not that simple, right? It's also not this, by the way. This is an argument that is made quite often. And by the way, it's true, but it's not the main point. That people are more important than the Sabbath. That the reason that David could do that is because it was for human life, and so he could go in and take the bread, and human life is more significant. That may be true, but it's not his main point. So what is his main point? First off, there's a direct parallel, right? You've got David, and he's got a group of people with him, and they're kind of on the run. They don't really have a home, and they're hungry, and this is where they can find food. You have Jesus, and he's got a group of men with him, and they really don't have a home, and they're kind of on the move, and this is where they can get food. There is a direct parallel in what's happening, but there is a bigger parallel, and here it is. At this point when David does this in Samuel, David is the true king of Israel. Saul is still reigning. But Saul has been rejected by the Lord, the spirit has been removed from him, and David has been anointed, and he is the true king of Israel. What is happening with Jesus right now? He is the true king. The reason that David can do this is because he is the true king of Israel, and as such will be vindicated as the true king. And the reason that Jesus can do this and he'll say it in his own words in verse 5. He is the true king. He is bigger than the Sabbath. And he calls himself the son of man. Turn in your Bible to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. And this is in verse 13. At least the Pharisees would have known what Jesus was talking about. Many others may not have. The Pharisees would have known because they were looking for this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We studied what God said to David. There will be a man on your throne forever. This became that man and became the image of the Messiah, the coming one. This is the one who was in the presence of God who had all authority and dominion. And when Jesus says, the son of man, he doesn't just mean I was born and I got a human dad. He means this, I am the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am the one that brings all authority. I am bringing a kingdom, even as I started off saying the good news of the kingdom is here. And I have all authority, which is why the diseases are being healed. It's why the demons are being cast out. And it's why on this day, 
my disciples can walk through the grain fields and pick grains of wheat because I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am king over it. They're going to come later because they can't um, deny his power. And they're going to say that he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Because they can't deny his power. They just have to change where it's coming from, change its origin. Because this is the turning point for them. This is when they reject him completely and decide he has to go. Now, I want to say one nice thing about the Pharisees. And then... I want to tell you what this might mean for us. Here's what I want to say about the Pharisees. I have said this before. Heather has said this before. The Pharisees are not all bad guys. They are not, as I talked about last week, all walking around in black robes because they're the evil dudes. That's really not who they are. They were considered the pastors of the people. They were the ones not who were in the temple in league with Rome. They were the ones that were out teaching the people. They were the ones that were caring for them. Not saying they're all right. I'm not saying there weren't bad ones in the lot. I would even make this argument. The reason they want to get rid of Jesus is not just because they're a bunch of selfish, selfish, self-righteous leaders who just want to retain their own power and Jesus is threatening them. They believe Jesus is threatening a way of life in Israel. They believe Jesus is threatening the coming of the kingdom because they believe that Jesus is pulling people away from the practices of Judaism, away from those things that eventually the true son of man would come. This is something for them that again, are all of their motives right? No, but are all of yours? Mine either. But it's not all bad either. Right? That's my one good thing to say about the Pharisees. Now, what does any of this mean for us? If all of this is true, if they see this thing as an identifier, if it's that important, if Jesus is saying, no, I'm the son of man and I'm Lord over the Sabbath, I'm the true king. What does that mean? Two things. Number one, and I want to state it as a question and then explain it. What are you holding on to so tightly that you cannot be of true service to God because you won't let go of it? They, for them, the way, not just the Sabbath, but the way they understood the Sabbath was so significant that they couldn't possibly see that it could be something else. And think about the evidence up to this point. Think about the healings, the casting out of demons. Think about the authority in his teaching. Everything Jesus has been doing up to this point would suggest that you should at least go, okay, if he's saying these things, maybe there's something to this. But the way they are celebrating Sabbath, the way they understand it, 
They are so fixed on holding on to that way that they are actually missing what God is doing. They are missing right in front of them what God wants to do in their life. And they cannot have both because they are in opposition right now. He cannot be Lord of the Sabbath and they determine the way in which they're gonna celebrate the Sabbath. What are you holding on to right now in your life? What tradition, what theology, what way of life, what anger, what, whatever it is, what are you holding on to right now that you really will not release to him? You won't trust him with it. About six years ago, I was with my daughter at Hurricane Harbor. Neat place. Lots of cool things to do. Lots of things that can hurt your back the older you get. While we're there, we're in the kids section. And there's this cool part where there's like these buoys that you walk across. And up above, there's a rope. And you can hold on to the rope to balance as you're going across. And any kid that wasn't holding on to the rope was falling. I mean, it's because it's moving like this. I mean, it's, and so you're holding on to this rope and you're stepping from thing to thing. But at the very end, you have to get off and to the shore. And in order to do that, you have to let go. Like you can't get off otherwise. And I am standing on the shore saying, give me your hands. And she is gripping it. I mean, knuckle white. No, I can't let go. You can let go. Now, here's the thing. This is what I believe Christians, myself included, do. We take a chance and we let go. But we don't grab onto him. We let go in a moment of like, you know, you come out of a sermon and you go, all right, I'm all built up inside and I feel good about this and I'm gonna let this thing go now. But we don't actually grab onto Christ. And so on the next day, we're falling, we're slipping, and we grab right back on again. I needed my daughter to let go and to grab onto me. And I would keep her safe and I'd pull her up. What are you holding on to so tightly? that you don't truly let it go. And by doing so, brothers and sisters, you're missing something God wants to do in your life. And you don't have to earn this. You just have to trust him. You have to let go of that thing that he is saying let go of and grab onto me. And then number two, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, so please don't raise your hand. But if I were, this would be my question. How many people in this room observe a Sabbath? Again, please don't raise your hand. You may be alone if you do. This is not a big thing among Christians. I mean, this is just not something we think that much about. We talk about it occasionally. You know, like I need a Sabbath or I should take a Sabbath. We don't really think that much about it. 
And yet, this is the issue that everything's turning on. Why is this issue so big? It almost seems ridiculous. I mean, you would think that a man saying, I'm forgiving your sins, would be a bigger issue than your guys are pulling some wheat on a particular day. Because we don't take that big of an issue with the Sabbath. This is what the scene reminds me of. I mentioned Hertz Donuts. Yesterday, I happened to drive by Hertz Donuts three different times, um, various places I was going. It was in the morning, it was in the early afternoon, and it was in the late afternoon. And every time I drove by, do you know what I saw? There was a giant crowd outside that donut plot. At one point, they were actually in a line going all the way down. You know where Hertz Donuts is? Like, uh, on Main at Teal, right on that intersection right there. It's going all the way down the whole like, little center of shops for donuts. And if you get online, they're talking about 90-minute waits for a donut. A donut. Hey, this is not like barbecue or something. This is a donut. 90-minute waits, 24 hours a day. That's when they're serving donuts. They have 100 people working in that little store. They're making over 15,000 donuts a day over the past six days. Is that not ridiculous? Now, I will say, and maybe this gives them something, apparently their best-selling donut is the Jesus donut. <laughs> maybe that means something. I don't know. The Jesus donut. I'm sorry, it is pronounced Jesus. When you read it, it's the Jesus donut. But as ridiculous as that sounds, that's kind of what this whole Sabbath thing feels like to me. As big of a deal as they're making out of this, all the other things they could have made a big deal out of, why is this such a big deal? And to top it off, Jesus doesn't do this, and this is really, really important. Next week, um, Heather's going to talk a little bit more about the Sabbath. I'm going to hit some this week. She's going to talk some about it next week. I, I just, Jesus doesn't do this. I'm getting rid of the Sabbath. Just notice that. He does not say, I'm getting rid of the Sabbath. Rather, he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Why is it such a big deal? Let me start there quickly. Because the Sabbath starts with creation itself. The Sabbath starts with God resting on day seven and being enthroned over his creation. The Sabbath takes place before the commandments, but the Sabbath is also in the commandments. The Sabbath is the reason that when they come and they take the Israelites out of the land for 70 years, it's because they did not do the Sabbath of the land. Even the land has a Sabbath. The Sabbath was absolutely fundamental to the DNA of Judaism. So significant. And here is Jesus saying this, I am 
Lord of the Sabbath, or I'm going to say it in a different way. I am chief of rest. How many of you are too busy? You can raise your hand now. How many of you are too busy? Feel overwhelmed. Feel like you just don't get enough of a break. Feel like things are just, you're tripping over your own schedule. Jesus does not say, I'm getting rid of the Sabbath. He says, I'm Lord over it. And you know what he does with it? Here's what I think the Pharisees ended up doing. The Sabbath became, and I'm going to go to the gym card. It became like a gym card. Look, I am a true Israelite. I observe the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying this. I should not need to see your gym card to know that you're in shape. I should be able to look at you, and because you're using the gym, it's actually made a difference in your life. What Jesus does with the Sabbath is he says, I want to reinstate it as it's meant to be. The Sabbath was about freedom. And that may sound very strange, but this is where I'm going to touch on a couple of things. The next story, on a Sabbath, Jesus heals somebody and frees them from the ailment. Do you know that on the Sabbath, when you rest, part of that rest is freedom from control. I could ask you to raise your hands if you'd like to control things. It's freedom from control because you are trusting God as the king to control. It's freedom. Part of the Sabbath is connected to the Exodus. You you participate in the Sabbath to remember that you were freed on the Exodus. And that freedom from slavery, that wasn't your work. And today it is still not your work. When you recognize, when you observe the Sabbath, there's a freedom from sin. There's a freedom from having to earn. There's a freedom from all of the terrible things that we are saying to ourselves at times about how bad we are because he says we are worth saving. The Sabbath is loaded with images of freedom. And Jesus doesn't abolish it. He says, I want to work through it. We're going to talk more about rest throughout the coming months. But I want to just challenge you with this. Go observe a Sabbath. Truly, observe a Sabbath. Take, even do Sunday. Just take the rest of Sunday. Don't do your work from work. Do that the other six days and get yourself ready. Look forward to it. Look forward to a day where you can go home and you can rest. Actually rest. Spend some time thinking about what God has done for you. Observe a Sabbath because it is meant to be freedom for God's people. All right. Pharisees fought for the Sabbath. I just think they fought on the wrong side. Jesus will fight for the Sabbath. He could have given this up. He could have given this one to him. But he's going to hold on to it, and he's going to continue to use the Sabbath to bring freedom to people as it was intended. 
the bullet was never removed. It remained lodged in Roosevelt until his death. It was never removed. A reminder of what he stood for, even though he lost. A reminder of what he was willing to do to do what he believed needed to be done. What he would fight for. You go to John chapter 20. You're going to see in there as Jesus comes to the disciples, they're going to talk about the wounds in his hand and on his side. And just think about that. He's resurrected at that point. This is resurrection body. And yet, in some sense, the scars are still there. Here's why I say that. There is something left in Jesus that shows what he was willing to fight for. You, us, his people, willing to fight for them. You see, his fight for the Sabbath was not just for a particular day, but for his people to have freedom. His fight for you to release whatever it is you are holding on to and just won't let go, that's a fight for you so that you can know a fullness in him that you cannot have when you're holding on to it. And if you wonder if you can trust him, remember that he still has the scars. That that was his fight for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for everything that he has done. For showing us you. For living out a life of humility and service, of obedience and sacrifice, of giving his life, but of rising again and ascending to your right hand in victory, that your kingdom may be here and we may be a part of it. Lord, Lord, Lord help us to release those things and in the way and to hold on to you. And help us, Lord, to know the freedom of rest in you that we all need. That we might live out of that rest and live kingdom-first lives. In Jesus' name, amen.